Hey everybody, it's Libby Kelly. Welcome to the Next Wonder podcast. I'm so excited about this next one. I interviewed Nancy Collier, who I interviewed exactly a year ago from her prior book, The Power of Off. My interview today is we discussed her new book, Can't Stop Thinking, which I'm really excited for everyone to read and listen to her words today. Nancy Collier is a psychotherapist, interfaith minister, author, public speaker, and mindfulness teacher. She's a national speaker on well-being, mindfulness, and technology, and has been featured on Good Morning America, The New York Times, and countless other media. She's also a regular blogger for Psychology Today and uh, Huffington Post. You know, this book kind of blew my mind, pun intended. It really was the first time that I have turned my focus onto my own brain, and it was um, incredibly eye-opening. I read it about a month ago, and I, I'm truly thinking differently about my own thoughts and the things that swirl around in my head. I highly encourage you to read it. It was just released on May 1st. As you read the book, I want you to think about an analogy. Actually, I heard this from another podcast uh, where Elizabeth Lesser was speaking. She is the author of Broken Open, among other books. And she gave this analogy that I really liked. She talked about if there's a river, and um, I'm going to botch it up a little bit, sorry, but and you imagine sticks all across a river kind of obstructing the flow of water. And what her analogy was, was if you want to make a change in your life, sometimes people think they have to go and just kind of get rid of, mow down kind of all the sticks. But really all that's required is moving a few sticks and you get nice good flow of water and then things you know begin to change and um that analogy has really stuck with me as as i was thinking about this book and and other things that it really kind of doesn't take a lot it also kind of takes the pressure off this idea that we have to have some massive overhaul in the way we are living i don't really have much energy for a massive overhaul of anything right now (laughs) but um anyway so thrilled to bring you this incredible author nancy collier here we go okay well nancy i'm so happy for you to be joining us here again here we are a year later i cannot thank you enough for this book i have been waiting for its release since we discussed it uh, this time last year And I'll just say, I've always known that I've had this kind of clown car running around, driving around in my mind. That's my description, not yours. Um, But you have done, you know, two huge things for me. One is to normalize uh, the clown car. And then um, two would be to help me be acutely aware of it. And I, I read your the pre-release version about a, a month ago. And so I've had a month of watching myself be kind of this unbiased observer of my own mind. And, and that's something that I have never done. And so I, I really can't ah, thank you enough for, for this. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually a little surprised to hear that that, that was new for you. Really? And yeah. And before that, you had thought you, like most people, that you were your thoughts? Well, or that I there hadn't. Was no separation, no witness? Yeah, 
I will say what I had thought was that the cycling and loops and rehashing and ruminating was something that was not so universal that I thought that I tended to have more of that mm-hmm. um, cycling thinking than, you know, than, than others, you know, do. And it just makes you human. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's really, and it's, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> you know, it's the, you got to name it to tame it kind of thing with this. Um, I guess that was Dan, Daniel Siegel that you've really helped me identify it. And, and, and um, which is, that's sort of half, half the battle is kind of recognizing it. A lot, even more, I would say. And, and I don't think that you're in that way unique that you think that this is your struggle to manage. And it's not even something that you speak of because it feels a little strange to talk about your own mind constantly harassing you. But most people walk around really from the moment they wake up in the morning until they go to bed, just deluged with thoughts, just deluged. And not just deluged with thoughts, but believing that they have to pay attention to every single one of those thoughts and believing that they thought that up that they're the owner, the author of the thought, and therefore it has some great importance. And more than anything else, it has truth. If you think it, you believe it. That's, that's the beginning of the clown car, that because it's actually appeared in consciousness that it has some value. Yeah, some sort of meaning. That's yeah. it. And, yeah. you know, it's particularly funny when you work with people who have random intrusive thoughts. You know, they're standing on the platform and they hear you're going to jump or you're going to push someone or one client I had who, whenever he went to the theater, he would hear and it said, yell out something crazy, yell out when it's really quiet. And, you know, of course, he thought like all of us, we have to get to the very bottom of this. This is some unconscious thing about my family or what have you. And the truth is we have this out of order computer that's kind of half broken it's brilliant and moments but it's really pretty crazy and once we accept that that not everything that it spits at us it needs anything it it doesn't mean something that you are being told that right that you have to then go deep into the corners of your unconscious and yes it's just oh crazy mind is here crazy right and we can really Uh just move from there yes yes I'd love to ask kind of a big picture question about how how this book was was born over what period of time did these ideas really crystallize for you? Well, I'm 50 something, so I'd say 50 something. <laughs> um, th- this is something that, you know, I am a kind of uh, I, in the book, I talk about people that are inclined towards catastrophizing, people that are inclined towards negative thinking, self-critical thinking, so on and so on. I was somebody who spent a lot of time thinking about the things and the people, primarily, that weren't working in my life and what I was going to do to fix them. Mm-hmm. So I was always in some sort of uh, arguing a case to a courtroom of one, which is my own mind, why I'm right. What needs to happen, what I'm going to say, what's the script, so on and so on and so on. Because 
so, so to answer your question, so after years of this, and really I would go over the same problem with the same people over and over and over again. And I've been doing awareness practices and sitting meditation for years and years. So thankfully, at some point, I had a real awakening moment where I saw 100% clearly that I was creating my own suffering. Yes, that person was troublesome in the way they didn't do things the way I wanted them to do them. But it was my going over it and over it and over it down the rabbit hole that was making me unhappy. And so I was walking in the park one day on this beautiful spring day, ruminating, ruminating on how I was going to explain to this person for the 37,000th time why what they were doing was the incorrect way of doing it and how I was clear this time through, I could figure it out and I'd get it done. And then I just started to laugh. I started laughing like, what am I doing? Why, after all these years of going over this problem, do I still think I can figure it out and change it? I can't. So in that moment, I had a real awakening experience of let it be the way it is. You can't figure this out. And that's a hard place for us humans to inhabit. I, with more thinking, I can't fix this. What I found amazingly was when I stopped all the obsessive thinking about it and I let the person be as they were, which is not the way I wanted it. And I accepted that I can't change it. I can't change it with more thinking. Guess what was waiting for me? Peace. Serenity, right? That's it. So all this, this belief that we are conditioned from the very moment we're born, that more thinking will solve everything. We'll we'll get to, there's a diamond under the rubble. There's a diamond, more thinking, more. It doesn't work. And that surrender changed my life. Changed everything. And it birthed the book. Yeah. Oh, so interesting. So one of the um, one of the quotes which I really, really loved. Okay, here it goes. I had believed that if I worked hard enough, muscled my way through enough mental gymnastics, I could figure out whatever was not right with my world. And once I figured it out, I could fix it. I mean, really eye-opening. I mean, really eye-opening. I mean, the kernel and the rubble you describe just hits home. Like if I can just think about it one more time, maybe I will, I'll, I'll figure it out and it'll, I'll I'll solve the riddle. And mm. that's the tragedy of sort of the way our society functions, which we have, we have put knowing, you know, mental knowing on this pedestal. Mm-hmm. On the, you know, it's our God that we pray to, right? More knowledge. It's funny because for me, my entire life, when something was mysterious, I loved it. When someone would tell me I'm not in charge, there, I, there was no time I felt better, right? So because we're taught that not knowing is scary, right? Not knowing means we're in danger. So we just keep trying. Think about it harder, more, put it in a different... Or, you know, like right now with the pandemic, you know, with so much out of our control and so much not known, we fill that in usually with catastrophizing. 
as terrible as catastrophizing is, what it really is, is saying, I can't sit in the I don't know. Hmm. That's the place that we just keep resisting. And we've been trained to believe that somewhere in our mind with enough rumination, we're going to essentially, you know, if we look at it from on our side, we won't have to suffer. We will feel differently. Yeah. We're trying to correct a past that we didn't want to have happened. We're trying to prepare for a future. We do, we're trying to protect ourselves, but the only tool we've been taught is think more about it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's so amazingly liberating when you realize that more thinking is not the solution. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like the, you got the joke. More <laughs> thinking about it and stepping away from it often, which is so so counterintuitive, Uh right, is often come back into the present moment. When we're struggling to figure out a problem to fix it, we're either in the past or we're in the future. We've left now because in now, we don't really need our mind for now. We're just here. Mm -hmm. We're not thinking about now. So we, we will do anything to resist. Just come back to the present moment. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You're not abandoning your your problem. You're not not fixing it. None of that. You're just going to live this now, right yeah. now. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I, I I you know you go on to describe it as a, a form of addiction, and and I you reference this a little bit. This I just I fell in love with the book when I read this line. It requires falling out of love with the endless material your mind generates without your consent. <laughs> and this, <laughs> I mean, this idea that there's something intoxicating about yeah. our thoughts yeah. and, and that you talk about our attention as being the most important we a- asset that we possess. And I, I love thinking about, thinking about that and that, gosh, how true that is. Um, and, how, and how undisciplined. We are with that greatest. Yes, yes, exactly. We're way more disciplined with our money, our, you know, the cash in our bank accounts than we are with our own attention. You bet. And with regard to the addiction, you know, it's funny when I first started talking with the publisher about the book and originally the book was titled, you know, are you addicted to your thoughts? And there was all this hubbub about, you know, nobody wanted that to be in the title because if you ask people off the cuff, are you addicted to thinking? They'll say, absolutely. I never stop. But if you ask people and give them a moment to think about it, they're absolutely not. That's insane. <laughs> thinking is such a good thing. You know, oh my, how can you link it with something so dangerous as drugs or alcohol or whatever? But then it's funny in the book, and I go through, you know, in, in the DSM, all things psychological, uh-huh. and I look at substance abuse disorder. And we, I asked hundreds of people the question when it came to their own thinking, and 90% of people, if not more, qualified for severe addiction. It wasn't mild, it wasn't moderate, but the the basic element of it is you want to stop or do it less, and you can't. Mm-hmm. That is addiction. Uh-huh. So why we are so addicted? First of all, it's, a, it's an addiction because we want to stop and we can't. That's an addiction, right? And also it's an addiction, interestingly, that at least with drinking, smoking, exercising, and all the rest, we take breaks from that addiction. We never take breaks. 
take a break. And we assume here's where it gets tricky. We assume that we are our thoughts, that we are fully identified with them. So if we were to stop thinking, and again, I'm not ad, you know, I'm not advocating a lobotomy here. Thinking is great. We have to make grocery lists. We, I had to think when I wrote the book. We're thinking now. But it's about having a say in what you think about. But in terms of our identification with our thoughts, we have the sense that if we're not chewing on a problem or a bone, we don't feel ourselves as existing. It's really an existential issue. So the moment we have a gap between thoughts, ah, where'd I go? Because we believe we are thinking. Uh So when you talk to people about being a addicted to something that they actually feel is fundamental to who they are, it, it feels un, ununderstandable, right? I see, but yeah. I'm trying to reframe thinking as any other obsessive activity that we get involved with and then don't want to do it anymore because it's causing us suffering, but can't stop. Uh-huh, yeah. yeah. How do we unstick from this behavior? And I, I right. in terms of the, the the stickiness, that brings to mind a whole section you have on negative thoughts. And I'm going to quote you here. I've rolled a few quotes into one. I hope this doesn't bother you. <laughs> there are a few sentences. Okay. Um, you can okay. tell me I wrote something. I, I would say, uh-huh. I don't even remember. <laughs> uh, uh, okay. Research shows that 80% of our thoughts are negative and 90% are redundant. Negative information creates more activity in the brain, more firings than positive information of equal intensity. Evolution has produced us focusing on the negative. Hypervigilance seems to be mandatory when it comes to keeping ourselves psychologically and emotionally intact. Clinging to suffering, paradoxically, is a way of trying to take care of ourselves. This is one of the big elements of negative thinking, which is when we're, and it is really true neurologically. You know, it's like if you talk to a couple, for every negative interaction that they have, it takes five positive interactions to get back to balance. We just, you know, in the forest many years ago, we we're always trying to dodge a stick. You know, this is Rick Hansen's analogy. You, who, who writes about happiness, that, that it makes more sense in terms of survival to attend to avoiding the stick that's going to fall on us or come from another predator or whatever it is, rather than chase the carrot, right? It just, for our survival, we're better off because you know what, there'll be another carrot tomorrow, but if we miss the stick today, there won't be a tomorrow. So we have all these reasons to be focusing on the negative, but essentially what we're trying to do from a site, now we live in a time, you know, where there are 700 peanut butter brands. We're not dodging sticks anymore, but what we're, what we're trying to do, and, and it's so paradoxical because it creates the suffering, but we're trying to take care of our pain. We believe mistakenly that attending to it with thought with staying with it, with keeping it present, keeping it going in a loop, that in some way that's love, that's uh-huh. empathy, right? Because to come back to this present moment and say, 
okay, that happened. That really awful thing or that difficult thing, whatever it is, happened. Now I'm going to leave it here and I'm going to be in this moment with what's happening here. That feels like leaving a dog on the side of the road. It's our pain. <laughs> yeah, that's our and pain. Yeah. Pain. It's the uh, thing that happened to us. Yes. Yes. And we are so more than our you know, accomplishments, more than the love in our lives, we are most identified with the suffering that we've huh. lived. That's what we consider fundamentally who we are. And if you tell a person who's suffered a great deal to come back and be in the present moment and stop talking about that, it feels like an act of unkindness towards what they've gone through. Often, we haven't gotten the empathy we really needed for that suffering. So this looping is in a really backward way, a kind of empathic, I'm, I'm here with you. I'm here with you. Uh-huh, right. And at, at the same time, you know, it's interesting because, or, you know, I'll give an example from the book where I was working with a woman who had had the ultimate tragedy happen to her, which was her, her 18-year-old daughter had died in a car accident. And, you know, she, she was looping for, for years and years and years and years. And she said to me, point blank, If I ever stop looping, I leave her. Mm. I leave her. And there is, you know, what we were, and I fully respected that, you know, and I was trying to help her see that the loss of your child, you know, Jasmine, the girl, is in you, is part of you. So even if you enter this present moment, all that pain and her, all of it comes with you into Mm. this present moment. We don't actually have to think about it to have it be here. She's here. That's that's a wonderful, wonderful way to, to, to describe it. And under, yes, yes. I go ahead. My my husband and I, I was, okay. So having read this, I, I can identify so much with, you know, rehashing something that's happened to me, you know, little, little thing at work, a little thing with a friend and, and the, and I, and my husband and I talked about how we often do this with each other, but there's a huge difference. So what I came to, this was just the other night, I realized that when I, when I rehash with him, or I re- rehash something like that with a friend and do it, you know, obviously openly with words that I speak out loud, not to myself, then it, it's, it's, it's over. It's, it's over. Really- and he says, or my friend says, you know, God, that must have been awful. I'm so sorry. What a jerk. You know, that person's terrible. And I'm like, yeah, they were. And then what's for dinner? And it's yeah. all, it's gone. Yeah. And then, but okay. when I, doing it to yourself it's it's the replay it's the replay it's the replay and what's interesting with what you're saying because it's so universal what you're describing it is just every single person so if we get into a conversation though with our own mind which is where it gets interesting and we ask that mind as the witness and with kindness we don't ask it with judgment but what are you hoping to find Right. And it's said with with a lot of empathy, you know, hey, sweetie, you've been over this thing that happened 5000 times. What what are you hoping to find? But we really have to ask it. Right. Yeah. And and sometimes we don't even know. We don't even know. Mm-hmm. Right. But that's where we need to step in as this witness 
And we're realigning who we are with, rather than the thinker, with the one listening. Hmm. So who's listening to all these thoughts, right? I'm over here. I'm the listener. I hear you. I hear how bad it was. What do you need? <laughs> I love that. I love that. Yeah. Re- the reframing, the reframing of what's happening, the, the conversation. and Yeah. And once you get that, uh-huh. that you're not the thought, you don't have to be identified with them. You're deciding what in all this actually serves me. Uh-huh, what am exactly. I interested in? Mm-hmm. Right. Much of the time, I know in my own experience, we all live it differently, but some people hear very clear thoughts or they're going over a story or what have you. My thoughts are more, if you imagine like a big shark in the ocean it's always surrounded by, you know, minnows or those little kettlefish. And it's just constant surrounded. But if you watch the, the shark, it doesn't even, it just moves through. You know, they're there. It's like static on a radio station. You don't tune in. Uh-huh. But what, what we need to realize, and I'm hoping that people to reading the book get, is because you have a thought doesn't mean you have to think about it. Hmm. Or that it means anything. Or that, that there's any way anything. Or that there's any that's weight. It. Yeah. That's that, it. So they're yeah. all there. Uh-huh. And what what do I again with this incredible asset want to do with my attention? Uh-huh. Right? Uh-huh. But there's another aspect too that I think is so critical, which much of our thinking is this, we've talked about this before, is narrative writing. So something happens in your life. I have a pain in my foot. And then whoo, the mind goes into what does it mean? How am I going to die from it? You know, how, how, what caused it? We create a whole scenario that then amazingly we believe to be the truth. And so much of our thinking is this story making out of reality, Uh right? And we all walk around making narratives. That's a good deal of what our thinking mind is doing. It's making sense of what's happened. But one of the most amazing realizations is you can leave things as they are without having to say what they mean, what you need to do about it, and all the rest. It could just be that. It could just be a pain in your foot. And then our favorite place, which is I don't know why that was caused. The place yeah. we resist, I don't know. That's a really hard place, yeah. One of the one of the most interesting passages that that's that's hard to explain. It's it's a paragraph and I'm I'm wondering do I read the whole paragraph? Okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to explain um I'd, actually I'd love to I'm going to read it. It's it's it the concept is to me is a little complicated. I actually wrote have Nancy explain <laughs> next okay, to it, good, but good. I've reread it and I, and I get it and I have a story to go with it. Okay. Good. Okay. Here we go. The drive to be perceived and experienced in a certain way gives birth to much of our addictive thinking. And it is, it is the sort of thinking that can feel particularly sticky and impossible to leave behind. If we were to stop obsessing on the preservation and protection of our own identity, we would then risk the other's version of us, their story about us becoming the one that defines us, the one that's considered true. To let go would mean 
to give up on being seen as who we want to be seen as, and sometimes giving up on getting to experience ourselves as that since the two are linked, linked. Okay. So it goes on and here's my, here's my little story. I got an email recently from a colleague at work. I'm going to make this unidentifiable who I asked about it. They wanted me to do a project and I asked about what was the time commitment of the project, which I thought was a valid question. And they wrote back, I understand your reaction and, and questioning time commitment. Even the good life can be overwhelming. And I was like, <laughs> I'm going to add jerk. <laughs> I mean, okay. So I'm going to give you the empathic answer. Thank you. Okay. I need the empathic jerk. I, I okay. you know, condescending. I mean, I thought, yes, okay, five above. kids in a pandemic, trying to work, trying to live, trying rounding out. Are you kidding? (laughs) Even the good life can be overwhelming. And okay. So I, I read, and it was in the midst of reading this book and I read this passage and I thought, why am I so upset about, and this is a person I don't actually even know very well, who doesn't know me very well. And I thought, I'm worried that he thinks that I'm getting pedicures and eating Twinkies Yep. And, entitled. and and I'm entitled and I have a lot of resources and I am not doing anything for the greater world, the community, my, anyone other than myself. And I, and I went so through You wrote that. a narrative. Okay. I, so that's your first narrative. <laughs> yes. Okay. That's my narrative. And that, that, that what, how could I exist in this world in a, in a group of people working with this person thinking that about me, I needed to change his vision of me because that's not accurate. And realizing that, uh, wait, wait, wait. And reading this, I thought, first of all, the narrative probably isn't right. He does know me well enough to know that that's really like far from it. Then is the narrative even correct? And just the idea of, Maybe I just leave this. Maybe I just leave it. And what if what if he does think that? What does it is does that really have a major effect? Okay, I'll yeah. stop rambling. Freedom. Freedom. <laughs> no, I'm so glad that it, you use the work. Uh, that's what I'm talking about. Exactly what you did, which was the unpacking first. First, uh, the answer is no with that response. No is my answer, but um, that's just solidarity. But um, what, first we question, so what's going on? Whenever we have a strong reaction, you did just what I'm talking about, which is what identity, what story about me am I trying to defend here? Uh-huh. Right? What What is really upsetting me? And you got to, oh, so what's the story of me I'm trying to preserve, which is, you know, I give back. It's important for me to, for people to know that, you know, I do care about the world. I am a giver. I am not this privileged princess. That is something I'm identified with. And I'm writing this narrative that he thinks that that's not true. So now my mind is in a fury because I've got to correct his version of me to the one that I can bear. So, but I love what you did, which is, first of all, that's all made up. Your, your idea of what he thinks of you is based on your history, your narrative, your, your conditioning, 
that's all what you're afraid of. So it all comes back to how you want to be perceived because you feel threatened. He's not perceiving me in this way. And anything that has the aroma that it could be this princess, right, is, is <laughs> yeah. you know, off your mind. So, but, but totally. the last part of what you did was, you know, one spiritual teacher many years ago said to me, be nobody. And it was the most helpful thing I ever heard because it was, so what? So what if he has that idea of you? Oh, okay. You are who you know yourself to be, not who anybody else. Whoever they see you as, they're just reacting to their own narrative. So it's I mean, like a fun house out here in mind. <laughs> Everyone is in their own in their own world. We we think we have one world. We have billions of worlds going on. But what you did there was, so what about his thoughts? Uh-huh. What does that have any threat? Does that hold any threat to who I am? No. I, I am this person who the world matters to. I don't need to spend any mental energy, jump through any gymnastics here to make that in alignment with me. What? what? Oh, well, I love that. Absurd. Yes. I need it's to so take liberal. that with me. <laughs> we all, we do this, you know, we do this thing where because we are so fiercely identified with some story about ourselves, which comes back to our parents, which comes back, it's all, you know, it's all conditioning. Um, because of that, when we are really fiercely aligned with certain thoughts, and they're almost always thoughts about ourselves, if anybody disagrees with those, we believe that we can't be that person, be that person that we know we are, or maybe we don't know for sure we are, until we get everybody's thoughts to agree with that. And that is such a perilous place to live from. Yes, truly. Life is about correcting and correcting and correcting. So I can know myself as good. I don't Uh want my own knowing of self as good, dependent upon what this guy's conditioning sees me. Thanks. Well, love. Thank you. I, I, that that leads me to an, this next quote. Mm. Every moment we spend lamenting our missteps. Okay, this is a more of a. Um, it's it's just the next next section. Every moment we spend lamenting our missteps is another moment of life we've effectively thrown away, another opportunity we've squandered. When we could when we could have been behaving in a different way, being and becoming the self we want to be. I love that. It. Yeah. I love that, that. This is really the tragedy of how thinking kidnaps our life. It really is. It holds us hostage to correcting these ideas about ourselves, to rewriting the story of what happened, to arguing our rightness. You know, we're lost in all of these, you know, down these rabbit holes. And what we're missing is, juice we're missing the juice of life we're missing now yeah i mean i i found myself on a walk last night with one of my daughters who was jabbering on about whatever she's a nature lover i've got some screen lovers so it's nice to have at least one nature lover um and jabbering on about the chipmunks and this or that and i was thinking about how little one-on-one time i had gotten with her 
over mm. time, you know, over just time, life. I have five children and I was thinking how little one-on-one time we've had. And in my mind, yeah. I'm telling, and here I am on a walk with that said child. And I'm like, yeah. what am I doing? <laughs> this is the tragedy though of how we live. And, you know, I talk about this in the book as well, which is the walk, you know, on in the meadow, right? And I recently was on a walk with a friend, you know, and we're walking by these stunning flowers and she's telling me about when the flower blooms and she's telling me about, you know, all sorts of information about the flower and, you know, what distinguishes it and so on. And a part of me just wanted to scream, can we just be with the flower? Right. Because language and knowing what you're talking about is talk, you know, thinking about the thing while it's happening and missing the thing. And I'm expanding on that to say that even all our language, even all our thinking about what's happening is still like a wetsuit between Mm. us and swimming because we're still thinking about the thing. Right. When we start to experience something with no language, with just the direct sensation of that flower or that chipmunk or whatever it might be, it's a whole different way of living. You know, and there's a wonderful thing where you can look around your room and don't label what you're seeing. Don't say I like it or I don't or oh, the workman needs to come on that or the ladder needs to go back. No, no, no. We just look. And because of our thinking mind and because we, we so revere it, everything that we experience in life, when we are there, when we're not in the future, in the past, and writing a story about how blessed am I to be able to be with my daughter and why haven't I done with my daughter? And oh my God, and I should spend more time. It's now, it's now. But even when we're not doing that so often, the way we're interacting with our present moment is through thinking about it. Is the tale of it. So it's even another layer of what protects us from here now, the real place we're afraid of. You know, if you were to stop thinking or lamenting, you know, what's been lost and you were to be in the freshness and the, the um, fleetingness of that mm-hmm. walk last night with her, it's overwhelming that this is what we get and then it's gone. Mm-hmm. So we, we, that, you know, I'm always on the side of the mind because remember the mind imagines that we are it. So it's trying to keep us in alive. So it's, it's on our side. It's just really, really, really primitive. But in, in trying to talk about, Oh, I should do this more. Oh my God, I haven't. What it's trying to do is not lose that moment. It's trying to freeze it oh. and grab it. So we get it, but it needs to step out of the way so I can actually breathe it in and be here. Oh my gosh. I love this. Love that. I mean, I need this so much. Okay. Part two is your tools for relief. And um, I love you. You give so many recommendations um, to bring us into the now and and Mm -hmm. try to get us out of our heads. I love the one line I'll read. The instant we drop into our senses, we've caught a direct flight into now. I loved that. Because, you know, the mind, the head, right? We all imagine if you ask people, where where are you, right? Well, first, when you go to where are you, people, well, let's say, what are you? 
oh, I'm a mom, I'm a doctor, I'm a, you know, a crossword puzzle person, I'm a wine enthusiast, whatever. We're talking about our hobbies, we're talking about our profession, we're talking about our roles. When you get rid of those, and you, which takes a long time, or I'm a, you know, a Christian, or I'm a exerciser, whatever, we get rid of all that, then we go into the, well, where are you? Okay, if you're not any of those roles or those hobbies, or I'm a Democrat, or I'm a this or that, okay, those are beliefs, um, what are you? Then most people will land in the body, but well, where are you in the body? Where do you live in the body, right? Because they say, well, if my body goes away, I'm not here. Well, wait a minute, if your arm goes away, you're still here, right? Um, you can witness certain things going on in your body, so there's something, but if you really push people hard, they say, well, I, I guess I'm, I live here, I live somewhere behind my eyes. That's where I am. I'm some essence or some something in my head. That's really where people, and when people imagine it, it's like a little, a little them. It's almost like a little toy sized them, you know, their face, but it's living in uh -huh. their head. And when we drop below the neck with just our attention, right? We get out of the little me in the head we find an experience of ourselves that is completely in the present moment. We find being, right? And it is out of thought. It is in the gap. It is that hum of knowing you're alive. It is that sort of electricity of aliveness, awareness, consciousness, all of this. Um, it is the space within which the thoughts appear. But we have to get out, literally drop our attention, our center of gravity out of the head and move it down through the chest, through the belly, through the legs to find this other experience of ourselves. You give a lot of breath work and mm -hmm. redirection of our attention, paying attention to our own attention. Big one. That's a really big one. Just just introducing that to people that throughout the day, you know, you're saying, where's my attention? Mm -hmm. Where is my attention? You know, most people it's on their phone. We know that. But then when you even when you're getting a little more subtle, it's ruminating on something, a conversation you had with your husband last night, or it's planning the dinner for tonight, mm -hmm. or it's, and, you know, the, the way we come back to now, it's so simple. It's just a breath. It's mm -hmm. so simple. The mind hates it because it's too simple. The mind likes complexity, right? If you want to, you know, Christmas for the mind is, is a real big problem. You know, it's like, oh, my day is set. I'm good, right? I can gnaw on this all day. But when we just take a nice deep breath and pay attention to the sensations happening in our body, we're right back in the present moment. So it's, that's why I call it a direct flight because it's so simple, right? I get all these people in my office. Oh, I want to talk about being present. Let's talk more about being present. Let's, let's think about it. Let's think about it from every <laughs> angle. But I don't want to take a breath. Please don't make me take a breath, right? Because again, terror. Terror uh -huh. when, we, when we stop the thinking train. And, and we're, again, we're not stopping it. We're just shifting our yeah. attention back to here. Uh -huh. What's actually happening here? Yeah. And that is, that can become a habit. 
So all through the day, I ask people to just, just take a conscious breath. Just notice, oh, my attention is down the rabbit hole on a conversation that I had last week or something with my boss or whatever. Come back into now and see, what do I really risk? What do I risk by reentering now? What am I really afraid of, of letting go of that whole narrative or that storyline or figuring it out or replaying? We have to get into a conversation as the witness to mm-hmm. this mind. What are you really afraid of? to move past that, that's over, right? And, and one of the, oh, go ahead. No, I, I was going in that is sort of you're setting up two entities where it's it's the the us and them, the awareness versus your thoughts. Okay, that's and exactly thinking it. of it, thinking of it like that. That's it, and what I'm birthing, I hope, is the witness, mm-hmm. is awareness itself. And just doing that, ooh, getting the thoughts out in front of you, as you said, is so much the battle. Mm-hmm. Because if we're one thing, then whatever thought our mind throws at us, our whole day is reactive, mm-hmm. our whole day. And one of the things that doesn't work about self-help, I believe, is that self-help, it's, it's great, but essentially it's telling you that we will teach you how to make your thoughts go from negative to positive. So We'll, we'll get those thoughts good. So then you can be in a good mood, right? But what I have found over decades of working with people is that when the going gets tough, those positive thoughts, it's a little bit like putting a hat on dirty hair, right? <laughs> you know, they, it just doesn't work. The, the, the system is wired to go back to the negative thoughts. So mm-hmm. what doesn't work about self-help is it's still telling us that our well-being depends upon the content that our mind is burping up. It doesn't. When What I'm offering here is a different kind of liberation. So our mind can be throwing up great thoughts. It can be throwing up difficult thoughts. But we get to choose what we move towards. We can be well with thoughts, not from thoughts. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I, I don't want freedom from thoughts because it's never going to happen. It's impossible. Never. Yeah. It's just like the, you know, the pancreas makes insulin, the whatever. The mind makes thoughts. No big deal. But I want my well-being to not be reliant upon this cuckoo thing going on in here. If I'm going to choose, you know, narratives and thoughts. Absolutely. Let's choose. It's a rosy day as opposed to, you know, chicken little, the sky's falling. But it's all, it's all, it's not what's fundamental, Mm. right? The more aligned we are with the presence within which all of that activity is happening, the safer we are. Mm -hmm. I I love you, your discussion of thinking as being a thief. You said, you say that Excessive thinking takes us to some dark and dangerous neighborhoods in our mind. It is also a thief. It kidnaps our life. Psychologists at Harvard discovered that we're lost in thought 50% of the time. So literally half our life we're distracted and absent from what's happening in our present moment. Isn't that terrifying? I mean, so terrifying. And that was, you know, that day that I had that really, and I call it a real awakening because you know, we have many glimpses, many times, all of us, we have moments where we go, whoa, and then usually they're gone. But over time, what happens is 
the, the glimpses of really being the witness, being aware of how much suffering we're creating for ourselves, you know, when we really get that, the awareness remains. It doesn't go away. And so when I got it in that moment, right, I got it that it was this glorious day and I was in none of it. I was down this hideous rabbit hole replaying a conversation with the same person I'd been having that conversation with for decades and the blooming and the puppies and the whole nonsense of it, I was missing. And that broke my heart. And one of the things that sets us free is to align with our own loss, that when we get it, how much our mind is taking away from us how much it's stealing those moments with your daughter or the present moment or whatever, we can't keep doing it to ourselves because we are aligned with our own empathy, our self-empathy. And that, that's a big turning point is when we're no longer identified with the thinker who's yelling these things at us and beckoning us to rehash and so on. And we're aligned with, hey, Hey, first of all, stop terrifying me. Second of all, stop telling me bad things about uh-huh. myself. And thirdly, stop stealing my life. Uh huh. Stop taking me away from my life. Yeah. Stop stealing yeah. it from me. That's right. I love the, that last, that really was struck by that last page where you said that you're, you know, it's a, you've had a series of these glimpses of awakenings and I, and I can identify, I, and I, I can absolutely identify with that. I think it's definitely, you know, two steps forward, one step back, maybe two steps forward, three steps back sometimes, <laughs> but mm-hmm. there's little like, oh, here I am again. Oh my gosh. I am out of the fog. Yes. Yes. And oh. we can give that to ourselves if we start habitually becoming the witness. We're, mm-hmm. So we're all through the day, I take breaks, take, take moments, and I say, huh, what's going on in my mind? Mm-hmm. Right? So like cinema verite, you just turn the lens to your own mind. You're not there to judge. You're not there to unpack. God knows you're not to think about <laughs> what is being thought about, right? But it's just we turn the lens and we say, well, Okay, where has my attention been? And then, am I here? Am I here? Am I here? Right? And if I'm not, come back into the body. That's our portal. That's our portal. We walk right into the present moment through the body. So, just like the habit and an addiction, we need to shift the habit so that the witness is present becomes a habit. Oh, beautiful, beautifully, beautifully said. I, I want to thank you for giving me back my, okay, here's what I was doing. When I was going to bed at night and I've never, I've never had trouble with insomnia or anything. So it wasn't like this was even really preventing me from sleep, but I, during COVID, I actually have had insomnia, which apparently mm-hmm. is a common thing um, recently. Mm-hmm. For folks. Is it getting better? It's yeah, definitely better. Definitely getting better. Right. I was when I was going to bed, my mind was telling me, Oh, this is great. You're going to bed. Now you have 
you have 10 minutes at least to just sit there and think about things. <laughs> and I would churn. And I was doing the same thing driving when I would find myself carpooling and then in the car alone. And I would think, oh, this is great. I'm going to have 10 minutes to just kind of churn through things. Yeah. And now yeah. I, I'm so happy to be blaring my radio and trying to just meditate myself to sleep and not like letting letting that yeah. be this awesome little treat for my brain. I mean, I, I had no idea oh, I was doing true. that. I had no yes. idea I was doing it. Well, you are not alone, I will tell you, because people look forward to thinking more than they look forward to almost anything. Oh, yeah. Really oh, it, was like, like, it was like oh, a dessert. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Like, oh, I get to think for 10 minutes. No one's talking to me. Nobody's no messing with me. me. Yeah, I get to exactly. think. And then recognizing that that didn't help. I mean, for what? It was negative. And sometimes it would keep me up later than I, you know. And it gives more juice to those loops. That's what you're really doing. You're energizing those loops. What I, one of the things that I like for people to do is, you know, from the time that we're very young, we start pointing to the objects, right? So what's in the sky? Oh, it's a plane. Or oh, oh, what's a, it's a building. But we are not, and I've tried to, you know, raise my kids also aware of the space around the objects. So we, it's really unnatural for us to notice that most of the world is space. And then we have these objects, but space is not nothing. So in the same way, I like to encourage people to start paying attention to the, the gaps, the, even if they're very, very short and very, very uh, infrequent in our mind between thoughts. So you start actually listening more to the silence that sits behind the noise than you do to the noise. The noise is the thoughts, constant chatter, but huh, when I hear a moment of silence or there's a gap, that we start to turn towards that, right? So that's mm. a something. And then we get more comfortable residing in the gaps. It's not nowhere. It's not mm -hmm. nothing. It's no thing. Mm -hmm. And that becomes actually a really meditative, beautiful space. Mm -hmm. So I like when you're playing before you go to bed with, what would it be like to, to sort of listen to the silence, not just the thought? What's that sky the birds are appearing in? Uh-huh. Yeah. Totally different frame of living. Different Completely paradigm. different. Yes, it is. Yeah. Okay. Well, I can't help but ask you to veer off from your book and ask you as a psychologist, if you will weigh in on the state of the world. I, I, I sent you, I know I sent you a, a land, the languishing New York Times article. I, I've sent, I've since seen that article posted everywhere, podcasts on it, um, and essentially what I'll, I'll describe is basically it's describing this dull sensation um, or dulled motivation and focus that many people are describing in COVID, muddling through our days, kind of this sensation of stagnation, emptiness, in this sort of emotional long haul of the pandemic phase. Um, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on on that kind of condition that I, I certainly have gone through it and I've heard mm. others describe, you know, something similar. In terms of the sense of stagnation, particularly, is that what you mean? Well, you know, this, I mean, I guess the, the, 
there's, there's this there's this fogginess where I think the, the the article was describing that it's you're not depressed and you're not flourishing. You're somewhere in between. It's this uh, languishing. And yes, yes, you know yes. what what I really, you know, identified with was for for me, okay, to make it personal, it you know, I typically have this curiosity about the world and interest in reading, learning, listening um, mm. to things. Um, and I have been, I haven't done a podcast in three months and I haven't, I hadn't, this was the first book I've read in three months, which is unlike me. Yeah. And I've just been in this sort of dulled state of curiosity that I've been yeah. trying to understand and uh, try mm -hmm. to determine why, like what, what's behind this as I've kind of sort of coming out of it. Right, and, right. and that's right. how this, this idea yeah. of sort of this languishing, this sort of dull yeah. fo foggy state that is, uh, you know, sounds fairly common in 2021, 12 months into this situation or 14 months, really. Well, what comes to my mind is that this is a marathon that has gone long past the wall. You know, it's gone long past 12 finish lines. And we've gone through so many stages, you know, horror, shock, grief. Uh, we've gone through the stage of incredible joy and having our present moment and knowing what matters and having time to ourselves and the meaning of life. And where we find ourselves now, my sense of it is, is just sort of drained of all of it, drained of the whole human uh, catastrophe and kind of not knowing now how to restart this engine and what matters, our usual mojo, our usual curiosity for things of the world has been really deeply impacted by mm -hmm. this and our sense of does any of it matter is, is deeply affecting many people, right? What, what matters? And, and we're no longer in that stage of, oh, my God, the people close to us and, you know, the, 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 the spring breeze. And we're not in that incredible discovery phase. There's a little bit of a kind of um, burned out and a long time of grief. And so I think, you know, it's a slow road back. It's not just that the springtime opens and we all get back there as the people we were. We're not those people. We're just not those people. So we're having to kind of redefine uh, not just what matters, but like, who are we? Who are we in this world that this can happen in? Yeah. And I think that that speaks to some of this. It's almost a depressive fog. It's not depressive and lay on the couchy bonbons depressive, but it's um, without quite the sense of meaning that we had pre-pandemic. Uh -huh. Oh, how interesting. That's really? what I've been finding with my clients, that there's there's been so much emotional upheaval. So much more than many people experience in a lifetime, in one uh -huh. year, and seeing the body bags and here in New York anyway, the big places where all the dead bodies are, you know, street level, and we've just had to process so much loss and so much confusion, 
And at the same time, all of the political stuff on top of it, um, we're depleted. We're uh-huh. depleted. And that leads to a kind of fogginess, too. I do think it will come back, and I think it will come back um, different. It will come back different. You know, I kept thinking it would be coming back kind of with a vengeance. I mean, I kept I kept saying, oh, it's going to be the roaring 20s, and we're going to be dancing on tables. Changed. Uh-huh. And we lived through a hell. Yeah. And it, there's not that there's really not that feeling right now. There's almost this, I don't really know. I mean, I just kind of, my husband who is the major party planner was like, let's do this event in September. And I'm like, please don't talk to me about the event in September. I don't know. I don't really know. I mean, I, I just kind of don't want to, I don't really want to, I don't really have the energy. And I think that's what you're saying is there's this drained and depleted state that we're all kind of left with on high alert we've been at fight flight freeze for 13 months mm-hmm. you know that's no small affair right and at the same time i don't think we reemerge if we're connected at all from from grief like this and terror and confusion um clicking our heels not yeah. not usually how we come back. We come back a bit tentative, a bit confused. How the world for most people doesn't feel like the world of March 2020. It doesn't. No. Our doesn't. lives don't feel the same. So that party that might have sounded great January of March, January of 2020, it, it may not even be how we want to live. That that's what I I'm noticing in people. There's it's not like a two month thing we went through. We've come out different, and what brings us joy is going to be different. It's not just jump right back into making dinner reservations and vacation plans. It's not how we roll as human beings. Yeah. Oh, that's a really interesting way to 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 think of it. I um I heard a discussion of this of Maslow's high, famous hierarchy of needs. Yeah. That came to mind as well and just for the the listener, you know, the bottom rung this pyramid, the bottom rung is being physiological needs like food and water. The next rung or next level is your safety needs. The next level belonging belonging and love needs and then the next second to the top is esteem needs like prestige and feeling of accomplishment. And then the top being self-actualization. That's where the creative creative projects and processes. And then there's even this trans- self-transcendence maybe added onto the very, very top, actually. And the discussion around it was that we were all pushed, we've been all pushed down into the safety level as, and then, you know, as well as the love and belonging. And our focus has been on safety and belonging and love and connection where we've had no brain space or energy for any of the feelings of accomplishment, creative brain work. And then, you, and then you mentioned the, you know, we've been on the, in this, you know, sympathetic response mode and where our prefrontal cortex doesn't work very well. There's no relaxation and creativity and thinking, good thinking brain, not the bad thinking brain, but, you know, good thinking, creative brain work. And so that, I I just, I mentioned those things because that, when I heard that, that helped me think, okay, maybe that's why I'm, I'm so not creative right now. And 
at the same time, you know, I would encourage you, you know, bringing thinking back into it, that the mind jumps in there and it says, you know, well, why am I not that? <sighs> right. And that wants to get busy thinking about, well, why is that? Right. And then we have all sorts of people we can quote and so on. But what get, what, what takes the non-creativity and this state of sort of fogginess um, to something interesting and alive is when we say, well, what is it like where we are? What does it feel like? Not why does it feel that way? And oh my God, it's not the way it used to be. But what is this space like post, almost post pandemic, not for India, but, um, and what is the experience of not wanting to do a podcast or read a book like now we've brought this beautiful asset called attention to the present moment. Now it's not lackluster anymore. It's not foggy anymore. But again, the mind wants to come in and think about why is it like this? Oh, we're busy for days. Uh -huh. But we're out of what's actually happening, which is, huh, does it feel like I don't care about this other stuff? Does it feel like I just don't have the juice for it? You know, we, we, we get curious about this space. It, it, it reminds me of this idea of of flow and getting yourself involved in something different. Maybe it's something completely different. Maybe it's that you just want to walk every day or you want to do, for me, it's hot yoga as much as I can or a project. Last summer, my daughters were making these beaded mask chains and I got myself to the point that I was the one. I was They were nowhere to be seen and I was <laughs> beading with some friends. Yes. Yes. And in retrospect, I thought, what am I, what are we doing? But I think it was this, it was this getting lost in something that, you know, your mind, your, your mind goes, turns, completely turns off and you're, you're Time beating. Disappears. That's it. Uh -huh. And we make all these judgments or the thinking mind makes all these judgments about, you know, what's valuable to get lost in. Right. But uh -huh. if we really throw that out and we say, you know, well, what if I'm feeling lackluster, can I notice where I actually get engaged? Uh -huh. Right. And then if it's beating, can I refrain from making a judgment about why this is? Listen, if we get 80, 90 lucky years on the planet, what's the difference if we're lost in beating or we're lost in what? Well, who cares? <laughs> I mean, why are we making a value judgment about it at all? So what, notice the mind saying this is not deserving of getting lost in. because And then we come back to your story. Well, what good are you doing in the world, right? How are you helping? We're back in Libby's story. But if we uh -huh. can unpack all of this, right, and let ourselves just be in that present moment beating without a story about it, now we're engaged again. We're not lackluster, right? Really, oh, it's really, really interesting to think of. Weave the mind back into that, yes. Oh, well, Nancy, I mean, truly, thank you so much for, for, for this discussion and, and this, this incredible book. And I, I, um, I can't believe it's just been released May 1st. Yay, and I know we're here. You are so welcome. And it delights me to know that you are living it. You are practicing it. You are being liberated as you go by it, right? Absolutely. Because in terms of also helping the human race, right? The more liberated we are from our own thoughts, 
us, right? The more that we offer this model, this way of being in the world that doesn't have to um, be controlled and be in our most primitive part, which is just this thought and thought and thought and thought, you model this way of being free with thought, not some thought, but with thought. That's a, that is a gift back to our universe to be in that space. Oh, fantastic. Wonderful. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much. Yes, you are so so, so wonderful to see you. I'd love to meet you one day in person. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) For sure. Okay. Thank you, Nancy. Bye. Bye. Thank you, everybody, so much for listening. I really hope you got a lot out of this. And, you know, I'm really intrigued by this idea that this pandemic has gone on for so long that we are emerging different than we were, uh, those people we were when we went into the pandemic. And that maybe that is contributing to the ongoing kind of uncertainty about re-entry life after the pandemic. Who is it that we are? What is it that we want to do post-pandemic, which hopefully is going to be incredibly soon. (laughs) So, and I also hope I don't sound tone deaf that I realize others have lost jobs, um, finances, lives have been lost. I I share my story and I've recognized I've come out of this pandemic relatively unscathed um, from those big, horrible things. Um, And yet I share my story in case it resonates with you, in case you find something here. Thank you again, everybody. Thank you as always to Russell Kelly for sound editing and music magic. Thanks everybody. Bye.